We're continuing our series through Dwell tonight. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm Rudy. That's my loss. Would love to get, it's not my loss that I'm Rudy. It's my loss that I haven't gotten to, to meet you. Ricky, stop it. Um, okay, no, I'm uh, Hey, we're continuing our series tonight called Dwell, uh, Experiencing Life with God Wherever You Are. Psalm 100, if you, uh, if you got a notepad, you'll want it out for tonight. If you have your Bible with you or you need to turn it on, whatever, Psalm 100 is where we're going to be. Uh, while you're on your way there, if you're already there, I wonder, does anyone here, like, is Subway, does Subway still hit? Like, does people still go to Subway? I know it's not Culver's. Is that like a hard no? Whoa, that was crazy. This first story's going to suck. Um, <laughs> okay, does anybody have like the, after that reaction, does anyone, does anybody go to Subway? Does anybody go? Okay, there's like some, all right, some people that are my people. Does anyone, Paige, was your hand up? Was your hand up? What's your order? What's your order? What's your subway order? Ham? Italian herbs and cheese. Can we have at least for Italian herbs and cheese? Black Forest ham? Or just the ham? Just the ham. Okay, that's fine. And just every, like, what do you not put on it? No pickles. That's a warm take. That's like a, that's like a, that's like a tepid, like, that's, okay. That's good. Do you do, you do any, any, anything special on it at all? Do you, like, add the guac or anything like that? No, okay, that makes sense, right? Because we're frugal, you know? I, okay, so I made it through. Well, I'm frugal. I don't know. Maybe Paige has got the money. I don't know. Okay, whatever. So she's taking us to Culver's tonight. It's great. Um, no, I'm joking. But I know Subway's not Culver's. I love, uh, I, I really got through college on the $5 foot long. I don't know. Maybe that like predates most of the room. Um, but it was incredible. There's nothing like eating something that makes you feel healthy, but you know is bad for you, right? Like that's, that's what Subway was. So I, I was um, I was on my way home from the gym a few Saturdays ago, and I just stopped at Subway on the way back because I didn't want to make lunch. That's literally the only reason why. And I got my order, which is Black Forest ham, everything on it, salt, pepper, oregano, oil, vinegar, and a little bit of that sweet teriyaki sauce. You know, it, it's gotten worse, but it's still fine. Um, which is Subway. It's fine. Uh, so I, I remember I also wanted to pick something up from Molly. And I know what her order is. She gets uh, the, the chicken or the, the chicken bacon ranch. I know that was close, right? The chicken bit. I have it in my notes, but I didn't want to have to be like, she gets the, um, but she, she gets a chicken bacon ranch sandwich, Italian herbs and cheese on it, like six inch sandwich every single time. So we get home. I get home before she does. She gets back. She comes in. Hi, love you. What's up? Uh, you got a six inch chicken bacon ranch on the counter subway right there for you. And she just comes around the corner and it's just one of those sweet moments where she's just like, I feel so loved that you just knew what my order, I didn't ask her, but like that you knew what my order was. And it was just like a, a sweet moment with my wife that's really kind of like, all I did was get her Subway, which we've established was apparently not good. Um, <laughs> right? But it was just like a, it was just a simple thing and a simple moment for her. Uh, chicken bacon ranch is like a little too messy of a sandwich for me, but it didn't matter because I wasn't getting it for me. I was getting what she liked because it was for, for her. Um, but it was so simple. I just remembered what Molly liked and I did it. And that just led to just a really sweet moment of connection between myself and, and her. When you remember what people like and you do that thing that they like, it's interesting how that adds strength to the relationship that you have with them. 
right? Like you've probably experienced that from people before. I know I certainly have. It's not isolated to, to marriages. It's across all relationships. It's, it's really a foundational principle of, of friendship. We show our affection for the people that we love by doing what they like, short of, of sin. We show our affection by knowing what they like and by, by doing it. it. It communicates these three things. It communicates that I, I see you, I hear you, and I'm doing what I like, what you like because I like you or, or I, I love you. Right? The reality is that that builds relationships over time. And what's odd to me is this. Whenever I hear someone say, like, I don't know how to grow my relationship with my girlfriend, this seems to be the simple answer. Well, you should see her. You should hear her. You should do what she likes in a way that honors you and God. And the result is it will build and strengthen that relationship over time. But when you add a slight pivot into that question, and it sounds a little bit more like, I don't know how to grow in my relationship with God, for some reason that answer gets way more complex. It feels like it's supposed to be more complex than the simplicity of other relationships. And yet the same three things actually would serve you well in your relationship with God as it does with really relationship with others. To see him, to hear him, to, to do what he likes. Well, it feels simple, right? Now it's certainly a little bit different, right? You see the one who saw you first and who beholds you and holds the, the world. It's a little bit different of seeing than the person that's in front of you. You hear the one who spoke all things into existence and you listen to him through the scripture. It's, it, it's a little bit different, more than a little bit different. It's similar, it's significant, not the same. But the third piece, I'd argue, is actually way more simple than we often make it at times as it comes to our relationship with Jesus. Do what he likes. Which leaves us with a very simple question that we're going to kind of get after here at the front end, which is this. Like, what does God like? Have you ever thought about that question before? We did a series last fall called What Is God Like? And I wonder, I, I sometimes think maybe we could have followed that with like a series on what does God like? Have you ever thought about that question? Like, you don't have to say this one out loud. I'm not going to call Paige out again. Um, but, but like... Have you ever thought about your answer to that question? Like what, if you just were to think about it, write it down, ponder it for a little bit, what does God like? Like what are the things that he says that he, and, and whatever your answer is to that question, like where did you get it from? Like what is he like and where did you get that answer from? What I, what I love about the Bible, we talked about the Bible a couple weeks ago, is that through the inspired writers of scripture, God has told us what he, he likes. It's a beautiful reality, a cheat code, if you will, to our relationship with him, and there's so many things, but I want to just draw out one tonight and focus our time around it. It's what we see in Luke chapter 10, this picture we've gone back to week after week after we've talked about this idea of dwell, experiencing life with God wherever we are. Luke 10, it's Mary and it's Jesus, and her full attention is on him. Mary, at the very least, we know she is worshiping Jesus with the fullness of her attention fixed on him at his feet, and Jesus looks at her and says, That's the one thing that's needed. That's what she needs, that's what I prefer, that, that's the one thing that's needed. And it's so evident from this picture and so many others across scripture that we clearly see this one thing that God likes. Now there's, like I said, there's others, but I want to hone in on this one thing. It's going to be on the screen behind me. He likes when our worship is directed on the one who is worthy of it. Tonight as we get into our topic of dwelling, we're actually going to be talking about worship. We've talked about um, being alone with God. We've talked about the Bible. We've talked about prayer. Tonight we're talking about worship. Now there's a great question that you could ask here. Um, and it's why does God ask us to worship him? <laughs> it's a really great question that we could get into. We, I wrote a longer explanation to this question. It was about a thousand words long. 
from before I felt actually adequate that I'd communicated everything I want to. So I'm not going to take you through it tonight. It's, it's pretty in-depth. It'll be actually in the leader email, so you can ask your leader for that next week or, or at some point. Um, but I want to I at least say this. Um, worship on its own is a unique expression of adoration for something that has ultimate influence on your life. It's you expressing adoration for something that is influencing you, which, which means simply this. Everyone worships. I'm not really concerned as to whether you believe that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you could never live, died the death that you deserve and rose again from the grave. I, I want you to trust in Jesus in that way. But trusting in Jesus and worshiping, like, that's not the only people that, trust, that, that worship. Like everybody worships because everybody adores something and puts their adoration onto something. And there are some things that have ultimate influence on us that we give a unique expression of adoration to that are not God and are ultimately destructive to us. And I would just argue just very briefly that worship of God is the most secure place that you can put your worship. That worship of God is the most secure place that you can put your adoration. If you give your unique admiration to a person, they will let you down. You haven't been let down by a person. You don't have to raise your hand. You're a breathing human, so I know that it's happened. If you put your unique admiration of worship on a boyfriend or a girlfriend, what happens when you break up? On a staff member at a church, what happens when they leave or you graduate? What happens when it's on a boss and they ask you to do something that makes you feel uncomfortable, but you do it because you admire them? To a parent who's controlling, that pits you against their spouse or their ex, what happens when you put it on a sports team? It'll crush you. On a job, it will crush you. On anything other than God, it will crush you. God's the most secure place for you to put your worship because as the song we sing goes, he will never let us down. Or maybe he won't do exactly what you want, exactly when you want it, but in his holy goodness, in his trustworthiness, we can actually trust him with our worship. If you put it somewhere else, you can set your watch because pain is coming, but because God is holy, he is unlike all that harms us. So with our worship, he can actually be considered as safe. And the very same thing that makes him secure and safe for us to give our worship to is the very same thing that makes him worthy. He is holy, he is other, he is unique. There is none like him. This is the God that so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life because his son would get on the cross for us and die in our place for our sin and then rise again three days later for our salvation if we were to put our trust in him. This is the gospel. It is the very reality of this that makes him worthy of our worship. This is what God likes when our worship is directed to the only one who's worthy of it. Again, there's a whole lot more time we could spend there, but the reality of this psalm, the reality of our time, is that we're attending to this, that we're invited by God to dwell with him in worship. The question we're left with is simply this. What does worship look like? Like, What's it actually look like to worship? Here, can I just tell you, it's not just like singing karaoke. Like we, like we like we're to come just shy of just putting the Mickey Mouse ears over the words as we're saying. Like it's not just that. What does worship actually look like? What does it look like for us to engage in and worship this 
God. Um, we could go to so many places, but I'm going to plant us in Psalm 100, and we're going to just walk through these five verses. You could spend the rest of the year memorizing these five verses, and it'll be a good use of your time. I'm going to lay it out just one at a time, and then I'll give you one thought, and I'll take my seat, just to, to help you take one more step into what it looks like for you to dwell with God in worship, or perhaps take your first step in doing that tonight. So I got five things for you. You guys ready? Thursday before Thanksgiving, we're going in hot, okay? Five things for you. They'll be on the screen. The first way that we worship, the first thing that worship looks like actually is our song. Our song. Psalm chapter 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. If you heard the tag of it's your breath in our lungs, all the earth will shout your praise. That line from that song comes from this verse. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Now it's interesting, before we get to the practice of singing as worship, let's address the people, the object of this verse. The psalmist writes, all the earth. This is incredible because this could mean at least three things. Uh, we'll start in the air and then we'll move a little bit towards the ground. This first thing might be a little bit esoteric, but I, I actually really love it. This speaks to the role of creation in worship. The earth as a unit, its substance and its inhabitants. Jesus says that if you don't cry out in worship, the rocks will. It says in Psalm 19, the heaven and the earth declare the glory of God. Creation points to its creator. This is one of the reasons some of us have had this conversation that I love science because it becomes more and more evident through science of the brilliance of a designer. Further, this creation comes even into the effect of the creation of diverse people groups and nations and tribes and tongues. It means that the people that are worshiping don't just only look like you, they don't just only sound like you, but the goodness of this God transverses cultures, transverses nations, transverses states and languages and opinions and parties and all of these different things so that all of the earth would actually find the home for its worship in God himself to make a joyful noise to him who all of the earth, the fullness of it, both in the substance of the earth and its inhabitants. Second, it's all of the individuals singing individually. The all is not just some like blob of people. It's like we have an all right here, but you also are individually a part of that all. So this speaks to the private or personal aspect of worship. This is you as an individual within the all having your own private practice of worship. This is you as an individual, as a person crying out, joining in, singing out with praise to the Lord. Third, it also speaks to the collection of the individuals into the corporate all. This is the group of people coming together to sing, much like we just did. Guys, we just obeyed and practiced scripture by simply singing at the beginning of our gathering. That was all a smaller gathering, but this is an all within the earth, singing out and rejoicing to God himself. It's the public expression of the gathering of individuals to worship together. This phrase, all the earth, is not just speaking to your private personal, or it's not just speaking to the public gathering, it's speaking to both. And I love that because it actually holds both of these together in a way that we can often miss. It, it feels like, like a loop. I think this slide will come up. That private worship actually fuels public worship. That as you come into a public gathering like this, you actually have a chance to sing from the overflow of your personal worship and time with Jesus that you spent with him through the week. I, I know that we have a band that is good. And I thank God for Zay and the team and everything. But I wonder, I wonder what song you bring to this gathering. 
The song that you bring to this gathering does not come simply from being a part of this gathering. It comes out of the time that you spend with Jesus throughout the week. That's the song that you bring here. It's a beautiful reality. What we do in here together in some ways actually is an overflow of what you do by yourself on your own. Now that's not to say that you, if you don't spend time with Jesus outside of this gathering... That you can't come here and worship. You absolutely can. That would be a silly thing to say. What I am saying is that the way that you spend time with Jesus outside of this gathering will unequivocally and absolutely affect the way that you bring a song into this gathering. And will affect the way that we collectively gather together. Your experience of this gathering will be different because your private worship is simply overflowing in a public space. So that's one way. But private worship also fuels public worship. Public worship strengthens private worship. Any bifurcation between the two is actually made up by us. The two are intended to flow in and out of each other as we worship in private and in public. There's times where you need to come here in your weakness or come on a Sunday in your weakness and actually let the people around you sing as you like quietly sing for a second and you just hear people sing things over you that you know are true but you're maybe a little bit too weak right now to actually sing out on your own. You need the strengthening of the worship of other people for you to hear them singing out to God and then to say yes we are actually doing that together. Private worship fuels public worship and public worship strengthens private worship. My wife is, is a worship leader, Molly, a lot of you know her. And after a lot of study, she has actually come to me and she said this to me. She said, did you know that the Bible tells us to sing more than it tells us to read itself? Now, I believe her and I also went and studied that myself because I was really curious about it. And, it. and it turns out to be true. The Bible tells us to sing more than it tells us to read itself. Now, in context, you have to understand that when the Bible was written, uh, that singing was actually a means of them hearing the Bible read, hearing the Bible recited. Not everyone was able to open up a Bible right in front of them, so they would sing together. They would sing these psalms together. These psalms were a means by which they would remember scripture and remember theological principles, and we actually do the same thing today. These lyrics are based off of scripture. These songs are intended to ingrain within us something that is true about God to help us have a greater understanding of the theological realities of who Jesus is, it means we sing out, all the earth will shout your praise because they are and we want them to. It, it means we, we sing out things um, like it's your breath in our lungs. We cry out, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide because they are. Like we sing things like that out together in corporate gatherings like this to remind one another. And it's interesting when we have new songs that you sing over and over and you've got those moments when you're actually able to start to close your eyes because the words, doesn't matter if they're on the screen or not because they're stored up in your heart and in your mind, right? The singing actually becomes a meditative practice of you leaning into coming to understand more and more who Jesus is, what he has done. It strengthens the way that you worship, yes, in this room, but also strengthens the way you worship outside of this room. You carry that song out with you. Look, I really do try to like make this teaching as like compelling and clear as possible, but I don't have a, a melody behind it, and the words don't rhyme. <laughs> so I guarantee you will probably remember more quickly things that Zay and the team sing 
than the things that I teach. Why? Because they rhyme and they have a melody to them. And you can open up Spotify and li- like that's just, you can't open up Spotify and listen to me on there. And why would you? I'm kidding. Um, but but like but there's there's a beauty to this that you actually can lock down and lean into and repeat over and over and fix your mind, your attention, who who you are and who you're becoming on these words that you behold and that you sing. You bring your song in worship. And this song echoes into the nooks and crannies of the way we live our life. Point number two, song and life. Verse two, serve the Lord with gladness. It's here in this verse that we actually start to break out of the paradigm of worship that's isolated to communal religious spaces. Although these are important for our formation and we start to see worship as actually a part of all of life. Now this word serve is really likely uh, focused on serving in the temple, but there's also plenty of room for this to expand to the whole of the way one saw their life. In fact, for the Jewish individual, the temple was the center of life, so it was saying, I'll serve him at the temple, and that will be a reflection of how I'm serving him with all of my life. It's not just that all of life is worship, though, it's that all of life is lived in worship to the one who is worthy, which means the way that I interact with different aspects of life changes as I worship. Jesus. I learned to look at all of life as an opportunity to serve the Lord with gladness in all things. Can I just give you two quick examples? One is going to seem really random, but I just want to really tease this out, and the other will seem a little sharper, maybe. Um, The first is with food. (laughs) Um, Not Subway. Yes, you're right. That is not worship. Okay, uh, Subway, or, or food. Dang it, you got me. Okay, food. There's one way to approach food in which food is like a utility. Like I eat to get full, I eat for sustenance, I eat to just fill and fuel my body, check the box, move on. There's one way to look at food that is through the lens of gluttony. I eat food and I drink to escape. I use it to kind of flex my wealth. I keep and eat for me and myself because I'm so terrified of poverty or I'm so terrified of being empty that instead I will simply practice gluttony. One of the reasons that gluttony is called a sin in scripture is because it's us hoarding into ourselves what we actually could be sharing with others who have little or nothing. There's even some understandings within biblical justice of that being stealing from the people who are around us that actually could use our excess. And then there's a way to look at food in which you serve the Lord with gladness in all things, including food. Gratitude means that as I take a bite of, here, I'll serve the room, Culver's, fine. Um, As I take a bite of a steak, it's the texture of the steak. The texture of the steak that brings to mind, oh, like, the design of this, the fibers of the meat, the way that when I bite into it, like it's chewy, but oh, but I can, but, but even, the, even the way that a steak could get cooked multiple different ways, I could reverse sear it, it could be, I could be, it could be, I could be medium, it could be rare, it could be, well, it could be all these different things, like the texture of the steak could change based on the way, like there's actually like a design to that. It starts to make me think this wasn't just some like random thing, like I actually get to co-create with the one who created this to make a delicious meal. Taste evokes this sense of joy. Did you know that all our food could just taste like nothing? And yet God in his goodness has allowed us to have like flavors. Like that's amazing. Like that, that actually can evoke a joy inside of us where I'm eating something that's delicious and is good. And then if I have made that thing, I actually get the joy of having entered into an act of creation with the resources that I've been given, with the mind that I've been given, with the faculties that I've been given so that I can actually enjoy this thing. I've got texture, design, t- texture, taste, flavor. Um, food becomes this 
this place where you actually enter into a, a communal space together, where we share a meal with one another. Food becomes a place where relationship grows and flourishes and strengthens. Food becomes an act of generosity as we walk by people who are so deeply and desperately in need on State Street that we're on so often. And we actually have the opportunity to just slip into Collectivo or Starbucks or something and say, I can get you a muffin and a coffee. I can use food to show generosity and to do a little bit of justice, show a little bit of righteousness that I've received to the people who are around me that are in need. It's a different way of looking at food. You don't worship food, you serve the Lord with your food in gladness. Money is another one. You want to get more. I'm assuming that's most of this room. Um, but why? Do you want to get more just to have more? Do you want to get more so that you can give more? Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Can I tell you the truth? Like a hope that I have for genuinely like everyone in this room and everyone that isn't here because they're on vacation already or whatever. Like it's that I hope that you make a ton of money so that you can give a ton of money away. I, I genuinely hope that you don't theologize the American dream and try to like theologize like some degree of comfort that goes way outside of the means that you actually need, but that you use your brilliant skill, gifts, and education to make a kingdom difference in the world and that you make a ton of money to support global missions, to support local justice initiatives in your city, and to support the local ministry of your churches so that you can actually serve the people that are around you. That's a different way of looking at money than saying, I just want to have more toys. You don't worship money. You serve the Lord with money and gladness. Serving the Lord in all things actually keeps me from falling into the trap of worshiping all things other than the Lord. So we serve him with all things. And this perspective of life gets formed in worship through this third aspect. Verse 3, song, life, and mind. Psalm 100, verse 3 Know, underline that word, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I, I love this one. Hang with me for just a second. This word know is the Hebrew word yada. It, it, it's actually, I would argue, one of the first words used in the Bible for worship. It describes the way that Adam knew God. That it is the first responsive act of understanding and knowing who God is. God creates Adam. Adam yada's God. Adam knows God in return. He responds to his created being by knowing the one who has created him. It's a knowing that is intimate. And here's what's interesting. And I might blow up the way that some of you guys think about stuff a little bit, but that's, that's okay. Um, I'm willing to throw this grenade in to the room. Um, we have a tendency to separate in kind of our Western worldview, uh, head knowledge and heart knowledge would be language maybe you've, you've used. We have this tendency to separate knowing from experiencing. Knowing is in my head, experiencing is in my heart. You hear people say, like, I need to travel the 18 inches from my head to my heart. Like there's some magical, mystical method that that actually occurs. And in one sense, that is a very real experience. And in another sense, that is a totally made up thing. It is a low view of the gift of the mind that we've been given by God. In scripture, when this idea of knowing God is used, when it is Yehovah Yada, there is never intended to be a separation between the knowing of God and the experiencing of God. 
Knowing is experiencing, and experiencing is tempered by knowing. It's when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 and says, Those who worship me will worship in spirit and in truth, with inflamed hearts and informed minds. Those people will worship me. They will know me in a way that evokes both their head and their heart, knowing and experience. The two are so closely related in this word yada that we're one, it's difficult to understand where one starts and the other stops. Whatever bifurcation is created between the two is imposed by our own Western minds, not the work or will of God. We know so fully that our knowing is experience, and we experience so fully that it gives form to our knowledge and is tempered by our knowledge. It's not either or when it comes to him, it's both and. And that brings us into this beauty of this verse, like know that the Lord, that he is God. Like you know he's the one that made us. He, you get to know like we're his We're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. Like that stops becoming just something that you read and it's just black words on white pages. But it actually becomes something that starts to shape the way that you live. Like, oh, I'm yours and you're mine. You're a good shepherd and I'm someone that's in your pasture. I can know you, the Lord, that you are God. As we come to know God, we're also confronted by all of that in us which is not of God. Again, the beautiful reality of our minds in worship is that we can comprehend the scriptures, who he is, what he's like, what he likes, which means we can also comprehend who he's not, who he isn't, and what he doesn't like. In worship, do not be surprised that as you come to know God more and more that your sin is exposed more and more. Because as you draw nearer and nearer to the God who is holy and who is perfect, it will expose the parts of you that are not. So please let me hang here with me for just a moment. The holiness of God is what sharpens that distinction. Worship over time will sharpen the differentiation between you and him. And you will say, he is God, and I'm very aware that I am not. Two incredible realities occur within here. First, the holiness of God means that he is the safest person that I can bring my sin to because in his holiness, he's the most trustworthy, integritous, beautiful, and powerful being in the entirety of reality. And he calls forgiveness a part of his character. So in worship, as I understand the parts of me that are not of him, I'm so close and so near to him that it only makes sense to bring those sinful parts to him and say, would you forgive me? And his answer kindly is yes. I'm safe with God because he's holy, not in spite of his holiness. What also happens is you start to experience this spread where in one way, your understanding of the holiness and the goodness of God increases upwards and your understanding of your sin and who you are and how far off you are and the broken, all of these different pieces that aren't of God goes deeper and deeper and deeper and what bridges the gap between the two is the cross. And so the more you understand his holiness and your sin, the bigger the cross becomes in your mind. The more you understand, oh, you had to save me from that. You had to take me that far. You had to do that much in me. You had to bridge the gap that was this distant, this hopeless, this difficult. And the cross just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in your life as you come to him in worship. And over time, this will cultivate this fourth aspect of worship in you. Psalm 100 verse 4. Song, life, mind, humility. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Just consider these words. Thanksgiving, praise, thanks, blessing. This is an ascribing, a giving, an acknowledging of someone in worship that is worthy of receiving those things from you. 
They're not coerced. They're not forced. They're freely given. Hebrews calls it a sacrifice of praise, an offering of worship. And that will only understand when you, that will only occur when you understand that the only attitude that we can have before God when we come to him in worship is one of humility. You will never worship until you understand that you are the one, not the one that deserves worship. You'll never worship unless you decenter yourself and see God as the sinner. You'll never worship if you think you're the one who thanks, praise, and blessing are due and not him. I'm pushing us tonight. This is the formative reality of humility. And God loves it because it is such a clear understanding that he's God and we're not. It's Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble. He attends to recognize and sees the humble but he knows the haughty, the prideful at a distance. He says, I'll draw the humble near to me, but I'll keep the prideful far away. Actually, they'll keep themselves far away. It's James 4, 6. He gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When I was 20, I led my first youth group, and I, um, I found I was saying things that were far too complex for the room, which is not to say that I was smart. It's just to say that I was not good at what I was doing. <laughs> um, and so I oversimplified it in a series that we did, just understanding who God is. And I would say this at the beginning of every teaching, that God is big and I am small. And God loves all of my small with all of his big. There is a recognition in that of your need of a humble posture before God as you look at him and say, you're big, I'm small. And in the beauty of the gospel, you've chosen to love all of my small with all of your big, though I deserved none of it and I needed all of it. See, when your worship is marked by humility, you will start to experience some of the purest, deepest understanding of what it means to worship God. You will see God rightly. There is a fear of God that will actually be experienced in this humility. Not this simply like being afraid of him or being scared of him, but a true reverence and awe, a, a right way of seeing him, a humility in the way you approach him. Like you could not imagine approaching him without thanks or blessing or praise because you understand who he actually is. I am, um, Brooklyn, this is what you heard me yelling about earlier. Um, <laughs> I am, this is recorded, um, I am so grieved by the casualness of worship that I've experienced in churches at times. And I feel like on behalf of bolder men, men who should know better and would confess to know better, who sit in the back of rooms with their arms crossed and their mouths closed, while we sing about a God that they claim saved them. The men that should be leading the way, the women that should be leading the way for the people in this room. And if you watch them worship, you would say, God is very uninteresting and not important at all. I'm sorry. They should have led us. And they should have led you. I'm sorry that it feels like sometimes the weight in a room is that the, the younger generation has to lead the older in being radical when what you actually are is just rational because you have an understanding, oh, that's who God is. Why would I not sing? 
That's who God is. Why would I not lift my hands and surrender? That's who God is. Why would I not get on my knees in humility? That's who God is. Why would I not actually act like he is who I'm claiming that he is? I'm sorry the people that should have led you didn't. I'm sorry for the moments that I haven't. For the moments that I, I feel this every time. I check my phone in the front row. I feel like I got a text. I check my phone in the front row to double check the service flow to make sure I'm going to be in the right place. When I could just be there and be like, oh, I want to enter his presence with singing. Because that's the most important thing. That's what I've come here to do. I want to sing, I want to hear his word taught, and then I want to, in response to the word that I heard taught and the gospel I've heard preached, sing again, because he's that good. I made a commitment um, a long time ago that I would never not sing because I was teaching. Um, I would much rather teach with a weary voice than withhold worship from the God who's worthy. You see, a humility in approaching Jesus in worship is developed over time. I've been captured recently by the words of an artist who spent a lot of time here at UW-Madison. His name's Sam Gilman. His work's actually on display in the Museum of Art on State Street right now. He had this concept called a generosity of time. He said that if it's valuable, then he would be generous to that valuable thing with his time. He would make time for it if it was valuable. He would prove to himself that the thing he called valuable was valuable by being generous to it with his time. Such a simple principle, such a potent truth, this humility before God, a fear of God, it does not simply come. It is formed and learned as you spend a generosity of time with him personally and publicly, dwelling with God and knowing him for who he truly is, which leads you to acknowledge to yourself and to others who he truly is, which brings us to our fifth verse, our fifth point, our last idea, song, life, mind, humility, confession. Psalm 100 verse 5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. A confession like this comes up all over the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 4, the psalmist writes, You have given me more joy than they have when grain and fine wine abound. That in beauty I can confess that he's good. Psalm 13, we see this how long psalm where the lament of the psalmist over and over is, how long will you withhold your face from me? How long will you keep yourself from me? How long am I going to suffer for? How long, how long, how long, how long? And then it ends with, yet I still will praise you. In Psalm 55, in the middle of betrayal, um, David is betrayed by one of his closest advisors. It leads to intense brokenness in his family. Um, just to, to sober up scripture for you a little bit, Psalm 55, verse 15, David in his prayer says, I wish that he would go down to Sheol alive, which to translate for you is him saying, I wish that guy would go to hell. That's what he prays. And in the next verse he says, but still I will call on you and still God I know that you will save me. It almost feels like he just code switches right in the middle of the psalm. He's like so passionate, so honest, so betrayed. And then he's like, but I still know, God, that you're good and that you'll save me. He has a confession in the midst of that. Psalm 147, verse 3 says that God is near to the brokenhearted and that he binds up their wounds. You know who could say that? Someone that's been brokenhearted and has experienced God binding up their wounds, having a consistent confession. There's this consistent confession that the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Honest, consistent confession could be one of the best ways to describe what worship actually is. 
I was in Atlanta this week uh, at a conference, and one of my friends from Nebraska, he serves on staff at the SALT in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, this is another reason why, by the way, you guys should go to conference because you just build these relationships with people that cross state lines. And he's been just a dear friend for about four years now. Um, he looked at me and he said, man, watching you walk through the death of Ainsley has strengthened my worship in God. And I looked at him and I was like, that is a wild thing to say. <laughs> um, I certainly did not think that I would hear those words, but as I thought about it, and as he explained it, I understood it to be true. My confession through that was honest and consistent. Can I tell you guys, even when I struggled to believe that God was good, I would tell him that honestly, and then return to my consistent confession, because God's able to hold your doubt and your anger so long as you bring it to him. This is one of the reasons that, that he actually like honors Job's prayers. If you read Job's prayers, Job is angry. Okay. Um, <laughs> he's angry, but he's angry towards God. He's angry with God, not at God, but he's angry in the presence of being with God. Honest, consistent confession. I'm far more comfortable today without a why and far more sure than God is good than I ever have been. Your honest, consistent confession across circumstances will not only strengthen your own conviction of the goodness of God, it will actually give you confidence as you share this confession with others by sharing the gospel. You see, worship and missions are so deeply interconnected. Missions leads to worship in places where it does not exist. And worship fuels missions for us to take the goodness of the God that we sing to and sing about and carry it to other people. It's impossible over time to worship Jesus and not think that the God that I sing about on Thursdays and on Sundays and that we talk about in our connection group and that I meet with daily as I open the word and as I pray isn't the same God that I should share with every single person that's around me and all of the people of the earth. This can't just be for me. It actually needs to lead me to share it with others. It's the very command of Jesus to make disciples that if we don't do something he commanded, then we are being disobedient. Worship fuels obedience towards the final words of Jesus to go and make disciples. It is impossible to truly worship God and keep him to yourself. There is a joy that comes in worship as you share him, as you experience the reality of the gospel that came to you, making its way to someone else. When someone looks at you and says, what do you think about God? What do you think about who he is? And you get to say in your own words, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. Song, life, mind, humility, confession. Some aspects of what it looks like for us to dwell with God in worship. Zay, you, you can come up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close. Um, worship is so important to the heart of God because it's ultimately where everything is headed for the Christian. Russell Moore says this. I love this line. He says, all of life is an internship for the eschaton. That life is an internship for eternity. Our practice of worship here on earth prepares us for what we will do without complaint or hesitation or plateau or mediocrity, or, or, or apathy in eternity. Revelation chapter 5, there's these incredible verses speaking of the one who is worthy. It's worth reading on your own, but there's these two verses, verses 9 and 10, that speak of the song that is sung in heaven. And it's this, that 
they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every nation, every language, every people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God. And they shall reign on the earth. If you were to continue reading into Revelation chapter 7, you then see an articulation that he then sees every tribe, nation, people, and tongue worshiping Jesus who is sitting on the throne. They worship the one who is on the throne in heaven, the one who is worthy, the one who was slain for our sin and who by his blood ransomed, paid the price for you and for me and for all people who would trust in him to have their home with God, to be saved from their sin, to become a child of God, to turn our back on sin and turn to Jesus Christ as our savior. They worship Jesus Christ victorious and on the throne and that throne is full because the grave that he was once in is empty. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. That all of the sin that's exposed in our life, even now as we worship, he covered every single part, piece, partition, idiosyncratic aspect little itty bitty piece, massive, gigantic, undeniable rock. He covered all of it from the smallest to the greatest. He took it on himself on a cross where he was slain. His blood was our ransom for our sin. He dies for our sin, but he does not stay dead. He rises from the tomb for our salvation so that we would be forgiven from our sin, but that we would also receive righteousness in his resurrection. That now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, the substitutionary sacrifice in your place, who shed his blood and died on a cross for you, but did not stay dead, rose again so that you might have new life with him. That as surely as Jesus Christ is risen and is with the Father, so too will you and I, Christian, one day be. The throne is full because the grave is empty. Because the one who is worthy did all that was necessary. And so we sing because he's worthy. And we live for him because he's worthy. And we leverage our mind to fix it on him because he's worthy. We dwell with him because he's worthy. We are humble before him because he's worthy. And we confess who he is because he's worthy. We look to the one who fills the throne because he emptied the tomb on our behalf. Christ, crucified for our sin, resurrected for our salvation. He has made a way for us to worship the only one who is worthy himself. And can I tell you, he loves it just a moment of focus and concentration. I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand, to move around. No one's going to come and tap you on the shoulder or anything like that. Um, But I do want to ask two questions. The first question is this. um, I wonder what your confession is. Like, Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord and Savior? 
If you're here and you're a Christian, you have. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you haven't. And I want to invite you to do that today. Today's the day of salvation. You don't have to wait till you clean yourself up. You don't have to wait till you get yourself right. Today, you could look and say, Jesus, I trust you as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to put my trust in you as my Savior, as my Lord, as my God. You made a way for me to worship through your body, your blood shed for me, your body broken for me, and you risen from the tomb. You made a way for me through your gospel. I want to trust in you as Lord and Savior. You could do that tonight. Your confession could be the Lord is good. and His salvation has come to me. For those of you who are Christians, there's a part of verse 2 that I didn't read. And it says, enter his presence with singing. It's almost like the psalmist had this anticipation in his mind that when I come to sing, I'm coming into his presence. It's not some pretend thing. It's not some, maybe if I try hard enough, maybe he'll show up. But when I come to him, he is there. He's with me always. So my question for you is, is simply this. And this is a question that has formed my mind every time I've walked into rooms like this and gatherings like this, but it's also every time I open my Bible in the morning and read through, right now as I'm reading through a chapter of Isaiah and I'm praying each morning, this is the same question that I'm thinking about every single time. What would I do if he was right here in the room with me? Like, how would I pray, and how would I sing, and how would I worship? What would my thanksgiving look like? What would my blessing be? What would my disposition be if every time I came to that place, I would say, I'm entering into the presence of Jesus? What would you do if he was in the room? What's your confession, and what would you do? I want you to take a moment with it. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to sit and reflect and think. And then in a moment, we'll sing. We'll sing out of our confession. We'll sing because he is worthy. And we'll sing as if he is here in the room, understanding we are entering his presence with singing. Take a moment. We'll sing. And we'll wrap up.